0: If you have your Bibles with you, please open them to the book of Genesis yet again this morning. We are in Genesis chapter 25 together today. We are ending the story of Abraham's life. We've been studying it for several months together, and today it comes to a conclusion. And we're going to study Genesis 25 verses 1 to 18. These are God's words. It says this, Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimron, Jokshin, Madan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshin fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim, Letushim, and Leumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Afer, Hanak, Abida, and Eldaiah. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Mechpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zoar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There, Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Birla Horoi. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael named in the order of their birth: Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Adbeel, Mibsam, Mishma, Dumah, and Massa, Hadad, Temah, Jetur, Naphish, and Kehmah. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments, 12 princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all of his kinsmen. Amen. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. Friends, have you ever wondered what the sum of your life will be when you die? When you die, what will be the tally on who you were in this life and in this world? When when all is added up, when all of the years of your life are over and all of the content of those years is finally calculated, what will be the bottom line? What will people say of you? How will people remember you? These are questions that many of us ask. People, particularly as they get older, consider in greater detail how their lives are turning out and whether in the end, when all is said and done, will the good in their life outweigh the bad or will the bad outweigh the good? And these are important questions to ask. We we should consider what the sum of our lives will be. But isn't it true, isn't it true that the the tally or the sum of our lives does not always seem to coincide with what we remember of our lives? Isn't it true that that people's lives can end far better than they began, and for some they can end far worse than they began? Our lives do, do not always seem to have a clear and logical summation of all that has happened through the many years. Folks, that certainly seems to be the case with Abraham, right? As we come to the end of Abraham's life here, this account of his death found in Genesis 25, this is a very positive account. It's very encouraging. Verse 8 says, Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. It's very peaceful. Things things end very well for Abraham. Family is even gathered around. Verse 9 says that Isaac and Ishmael, who were at odds with one another, are peacefully present at his passing and at his burial. Abraham is, is fruitful and peaceful right to the very end. But for those of us who have been studying Abraham's life over the last few months, this does not seem to add up, does it? Abraham was far from a perfect man. In fact, Abraham was a downright troubled man in many ways. He made some serious mistakes, like like catastrophic type mistakes. Do you remember when he slept with a slave girl and then when she became pregnant with his son and bore that son, he then drove that slave girl and her son out into the wilderness to die beneath the elements. But yet scripture commends Abraham. This text highlights how good his life was at the end, and, and the New Testament also speaks very highly of Abraham. Paul the Apostle in Romans chapter 4 says about Abraham that no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. Really, Paul? No unbelief made him waver. I think I can recall a few moments where there was some unbelief in Abraham's life. Hebrews chapter 11 says, God is not ashamed to be called the God of Abraham and Sarah. And I just want to say, God, maybe you should be a little bit ashamed of them. Did you see what they did when they went down to Egypt? What about his pride? What about Abraham's fear and his lust? I mean, the the dude lived 175 years. I am confident that we do not even know a fraction of his sin throughout his life. But yet this text speaks so highly of him. And so we are left to ask the question, why? How? How can the sum of Abraham's life be so positive? How can it end this well? See, in, in our legalistic minds, in, in our rules-oriented, in our, in our what-goes-around-comes-around around perspective on life, in, in our graceless understanding of this world our understanding is that the sum of our lives is only determined by what we do and how well we do it. And from that perspective, the sum of Abraham's life does not make any sense. In our natural understanding of how this world works, we think there should be a few more subtractions from the sum of his life. And if he even ends in the positive, it's kind of barely in the positive. But friends, when we think this way, we are not thinking as Christians. When we think this way, we are not thinking as recipients of God's grace in and through the gospel. When we think that the sum of our lives is is found only by the things that we do, we are thinking in a decidedly non-Christian, even anti-gospel sort of way. The, The sum of our lives is not only determined by what we do and don't do in life. Why? Well, because God has entered into our lives with his grace and mercy. And he has forever changed the way that we measure our lives in this world. God has forever shifted the way that we determine what success and failure are in our lives. Folks, here's the main idea of our message today, and it's, it's written in a way to speak directly to you this morning, wherever you find yourself today. Here it is. Christian, the sum of your life from beginning to end is grace and only grace. Christian, the sum of your life from beginning to end, no matter what you've done, no matter what you're going through, no matter what trials you've endured, the sum of your life from beginning to end is grace and only God's grace. That's our main idea, friends, and we have three points to consider together today. They're very simple. Number one, grace for your past. Number two, grace for your present. And number three, grace for your future let's go ahead and consider the first. Point number one, grace for your past. Folks, even though even though this final account of Abraham's death and burial is very positive, it it honors Abraham's life, there are still things here that remind us of Abraham's sinful past. First of all, verse one says that Abraham took another wife. Now, Commentators debate whether this taking of Keturah as his wife was before or after Sarah's death. But, but many believe that it was before Sarah had died. Many think that Keturah became Abraham's wife while Sarah was still alive. And they think that because of some of the chronological issues found within the text. But, but also because of how in verse 6 it describes her as a concubine. And so for her to be described as a concubine means that she was not Abraham's first or, or primary or only wife. And so this means that Abraham lightly pursued yet another relationship with a woman that he should not have pursued a relationship with, just like he did with Hagar back in chapter twenty. God never commends the taking of multiple wives. It always leads to trouble. And, and even if Abraham married Keturah after Sarah died, and she was his only wife, and that was a little bit more legitimate, we also see here the reminders of Abraham's sinful past as this text speaks of Ishmael, right? Verse 12 speaks in detail about how Ishmael was Abraham's son whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. You cannot read the name of Ishmael without recalling this sinful, grievous, dramatic event without thinking about chapters 20 and 21 when Abraham slept with the slave girl in order to have a child and then drove her and that child into the wilderness. Folks, though Abraham is honored in this text, his sin and his faithlessness are really not that far from view. As we read this, we can remember all that we've read about Abraham in chapters 12 to 24 and the the consistent examples of his sin. Again, his fear and his deceit as he lied about his wife being his sister not once but twice. His sexual immorality with Hagar. his, His failure of leadership on a number of different fronts. Though Abraham dies at a good old age, Though the story ends positively, his sins were very bad, and they are not far from view. Friends, isn't this the constant experience of the Christian life? Though we know that Jesus is for us, we are often still haunted by our past. Our past mistakes, our past sins never seem to to fully release us. They they always seem to be behind us. And so though we often enjoy the gift of God's grace and forgiveness, we often do not even allow ourselves to forget or forgive the sins that we've committed. Think about that. We are often slower to forgive ourselves than God himself is. Our our past sins oftentimes want to, to hunt us down. They want to condemn us and press us into a dark hole of fear and shame and not let us out of that. They want to convince us that the sum of our lives is only negative because of the things that we have done in our past. Friends, what is it for you? Is it past sexual sin, a one-night stand, an extramarital affair, a make-out session, Is it years of deceit where you lied to those who were closest to you so that you would not have them know who you truly were? Is is it something at work, something from the past where you undermined or cheated your way to the top that still haunts you? Is it a a relational sin where you said things that you should not have said and those words still echo in your mind? Is Is it substance abuse, drunkenness that no one knows about, things that you've done while drunk that no one knows about? What is it for you? Friends, we all have sins in our past, both big and small, that the devil would love to use to cause us today to lose hope and to forget who we are in Jesus. He would love to hunt us down with those things. You know, Ashley and I have been reading Victor Hugo's Les Miserables together. It is an excellent book, but it's a very long book. We've been reading it for three years now. We are 400 pages into it, and we're still only one-third of the way done with it. We might be 175 years old like Abraham was when we are done reading the book. It's long, but it's also very good. If you're familiar with the story of Les Mis, Jean Valjean, who is the main character, is hunted by his past. Years before, he had committed a crime, and then he went to prison for that crime. And then since leaving prison, there is... A ruthless, graceless officer named Javert, who refuses to let Jean Valjean go free. He is convinced that Jean Valjean should still be in prison for his crimes. And so Javert makes it his life work, his life goal to find him, to hunt him down, and to condemn him for his sins. Well, just this past Monday, we were reading, and in the chapter that we were reading, it seemed like Javert might win. He had hunted Jean Valjean down. He had cornered him in a very dark street corner. There was nowhere to go. Jean Valjean was completely trapped. It was a dark corner. The condemning footsteps of Javert were quickly approaching and echoing through the street. It seemed like the end had come. But then Jean Valjean, in his strength, climbed over the wall, and, and without knowing it, he climbed over the wall into a convent, into a church courtyard. And as he landed, he suddenly began to hear people singing. That the singing, it says, pierced through the darkness. It was actually disorienting for Jean Valjean. In that moment, singing was the last thing that he expected to hear. He expected to hear the sounds of chains being put upon him, but rather, he hears singing? Friends, that's so many of us. We are cornered by our sin. We are in darkness because of our past. The condemning footsteps of our own minds and of the devil are heavy upon us. There seems like there's nowhere to go. You wake up in the morning and all you hear yourself say is, you idiot, you screw up, you moron. How dare you think that you can live a happy life when you did that in your past? That the message in your head on a daily basis is that your past sins are your present reality, that your past sins are your present identity, that because you did that, because you committed those sins, that is who you are today, and you can never escape that reality. But, friends, you need to climb over the wall. You need to climb over the wall and you need to hear the voice of Jesus singing over you this morning. You need to open your eyes in the darkness. You need to listen closely for the gospel. Sometimes it's hard to hear the gospel. Listen closely and hear the good news. Your sin and shame are not the end of the story. Not even close, church. Abraham's past sins were not the end of his story because God was faithful to his promises in Abraham's life. Abraham's identity, the the sum of his life was not his mistakes. No, it was God's grace. And friends, your past sins will not determine the sum of your life either. They won't because Jesus, because Jesus the Son of God has come He has come and he has taken the weight of your sin and the weight of your shame and he has borne those things on the cross and he has received the punishment for them. He has exhausted the wrath of God against those sins and he has now joyfully and definitively declared you forgiven. You are righteous in his sight. He holds nothing else against you this morning. When he looks at you, he doesn't see your past. He sees Christ at work within you. Your past are no longer your identity or greatest reality. God's forgiveness is. Friends, if you feel cornered by your past this morning, if you cannot see out of the darkness, take a minute with me now to listen to the voice of God sing over you today. The voice of God. He says in Isaiah 53, Surely I have borne your grief and carried your sorrows. Yet you esteemed me, stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, But I was pierced for your transgressions. I was crushed for your iniquities. Upon me was the chastisement that brought you peace. And with my wounds you are healed. Listen to the words of the Lord. The psalmist says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Listen. Who forgives all your iniquity. Who heals all all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you today with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Friends, listen to John sing over you this morning. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let Paul have a stanza. He says in Romans 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Church, why is there therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Because Jesus himself in Luke chapter 7 when speaking to the sinful and sexually immoral woman said these words, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven, church. This is grace over your past. Church, you're not cornered by your sin. You're not condemned by your mistakes because the work of Jesus has freed you from that and it will continue to free you. Listen, if you are here and you are not a Christian or if you are a Christian and you're just feeling particularly condemned, you need to hear this news. And we actually want to pray over you today. And so if you are not a Christian and you need hope, you need freedom from your past, come up after the service and we would love to pray over you. We want to remind you, church, from God's word, that your past is not your present reality. And friends, we want to remind you that God's grace is not only for your past, it's also for your present. That brings us to our second point this morning, point number two, grace for your present even as we consider how, how faithful God was to not hold Abraham's past sins against him, we must also note that there was daily grace available to Abraham, which was used by God to both sustain and transform him. So church, what a joy it has been to study the life of Abraham together, right? Th- though he was very weak, though he was marked by many sins, though we are weak and, by, and marked by many sins. It's so important that we also see in the story how God was actively at work in his life. God was at work in Abraham's life, not just to forgive him of his many mistakes, but also to transform him into the man that God intended him to be. Abraham went from being a, a nobody to being a man Called by God out of the land of Ur, out of his idolatry, out of his false worship, to be a son of God who actively lived for his glory and who would become a father of a multitude of nations. He's not a perfect man, but there was grace available for Abraham to live for God in very real ways. Do you remember Genesis chapter 17? Genesis 17, Abraham actively participated in the covenant. He was circumcised, and he had his whole household circumcised as an act of obedience and radical faith in God. Do you remember Genesis 18? Genesis 18, Abraham was shown to be a beautiful example of what it means to follow God. In Genesis 18, we saw his lavish hospitality to strangers. We saw his bold belief that God would be faithful to his promises, and he even became a, a prophet of sorts as he, he prayed boldly on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. Church, do you remember Genesis 22 and how quickly Abraham rose up in the morning to obey God even when it meant offering his son Isaac as a sacrifice? Do you remember his, his belief that God could raise, even raise Isaac from the dead? Folks, we even see Abraham's active obedience in our text here today. In his very last days, he's still obeying God. The text tells us that he had many sons through Keturah, but we see in verses five to six that Abraham gave all that he had to his son Isaac. He gave gifts to the other sons, but he also sent them away out of the land of promise. Why? Well, because Isaac was the child that God had promised to bless. Isaac was the one that God had said in Genesis chapter 17, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac. Abraham knew that Isaac was the one that God had chosen to bless. And so even in his old age, he gave all that he had to Isaac and sent his other sons away in order to ensure that Isaac would dwell in the land. Listen, if you are an older saint with us today, please notice I said older and not old. If you are a more seasoned Christian, more seasoned in life, let this exhort you this morning. The need for obedience does not wear off the older you get. No, we are called to actively live for and obey God till our final days. Church, Abraham was not perfect, he had many faults. But yet God gave him daily grace to grow and to mature in his faith, to live by faith before the Lord. There was grace available to Abraham every day to turn from his sinful ways and to become more and more obedient to God. His faith in God led him to grow in God. Yet he really did have victory over his sin. Friends, the same is true for us. Not only do we know the joy of God's forgiveness over our past. We also have present grace in our lives to experience real life transformation. This picture of Abraham and his obedience is is consistent throughout scripture for, for all of God's people, and it should be for us today as well. For those who believe in God and experience the incredible joy of his forgiveness over their past, that faith in God, if it is real faith, must lead those people to obedience before God today. This is the exact point that James makes in James chapter 2 when talking about Abraham. He uses Abraham's faith and obedience as an example for the church. He says, just like in the life of Abraham, our faith is going to be proven. It is going to be proven as, and seen as sincere and real faith by our act of obedience before God. See, I think that some people have a misunderstanding of God's grace. They they love that grace is available for their past. They they love being forgiven of their many sins, and they see God's grace of forgiveness as, in some ways, a a get-out-of-jail-free card for how they live here today. They they believe that because God has so much grace available for them that he doesn't care how you live now. They think, why why does it matter if I get less angry? Why, Why does it matter if I disciple my children? Why does it matter if I struggle with pornography? Well, why does it matter? Because the sins of today are, are going to quickly become the sins of yesterday, right? And we've already learned that God loves to forgive the sins of our past. And so why not keep sinning so that God's grace can abound in my life? Why, why care about living a godly life? Isn't God just going to love to forgive me whatever I do? No! No! The grace of God that saved us in the past, if it truly saved us, is grace that will transform us in the present. It will change you, brother. It will change you, sister. If you truly understand the grace of God, you will so cherish it, so enjoy it, so love it and celebrate it that your life will become morphed to it, affected by it. You will grow in your love for Jesus so much that your hate of sin will grow as well. You, you will love life in him so much that you will put sin to death. You will become more godly. You will do the hard work to lead your family well. You will care for the poor and for the needy. You will pursue humility and community and fellowship. That's what God's grace does in us. It moves us. It changes us just like it did with the weak man, Abraham. And so where do you feel defeated today? I'm not talking about past sins that you feel condemned by. I'm talking about present sins that you're still fighting against. Where where do you feel defeated? Where do you want to give up? Where do you feel like there's no hope for change? Is it it your marriage? Is it anger? Is it pride? Is it selfishness, self-righteousness towards others, laziness in life, sinful independence and a refusal to to live in community? Where where are you struggling, Christian? Where, Where does that victory seem impossible in your life? Do not give up on fighting for holiness. Do not give up on pursuing righteousness because God's grace will transform you as you look to him. And how, how do we not give up in this? How do we not grow weary in doing good? Friend, you don't give up on that pursuit of holiness by never stopping to consider the grace of God in and through the gospel. The grace that you have experienced in the past is the same grace that will continue to transform you in the present. And so cherish it. Meditate on it. Sing about it. Declare it to yourself. Declare it to each other. Preach the gospel day in and day out. Cherish it and rejoice in it because as you do, it will transform you. And for you also, if you are currently struggling with being defeated in sin, we would love to pray for you at the end of this gathering as well. Friends, that brings us to point number three, grace for your future. Did you notice how the majority of the text that we're studying today is really made up of of two genealogies, the death of Abraham, which is fairly climactic in the story in verses seven to 11. that, that, That account is sandwiched between Keturah's descendants and the descendants of Ishmael. And so we need to ask the question of whether that is significant, why that placement, What's the point of these genealogies? Well, part of the reason is simply pragmatic. It's simply for Moses to record what happened at the end of Abraham's life. But there's more to it. There's more to it than just a historical account. Folks, think about how this would have been read by the original readers. We know that God was faithful to fulfill his primary promise to Abraham to give him his son, Isaac. That's the primary way that we see God's faithfulness here. But these genealogies reveal God's faithfulness to his word in other ways as well. Back in in Genesis chapter 17, verse 4, God had said to Abraham, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. That. That was a promise that God had made, and and here in chapter 25, we see God begin to fulfill it. All of these names, these these sons of Keturah in verses 2 to 4, the names of Sheba and Midian and Zimron, these are all future nations that would surround Israel. In, In Genesis 17, verse 20, God had said, to Abraham, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. Folks, that's exactly what we see in chapter 25, verse 16, when it says, these are the sons of Ishmael, the 12 princes according to their tribes. And so, we see through this that God was faithful not just to some of his word, not just to some of his promises, but to all of his word and all of his promises. And so think about reading this as a first-time reader, as an Israelite. Think about reading this while being lost in the wilderness with Moses, your leader, about to die and being unsure as to what would come next. Do you think that seeing God's faithfulness even in the smallest details would encourage you? Absolutely. Church, the effect of this is to cause the original readers and us today to say, if God is faithful, even in these small promises, even about Ishmael, how much can he be trusted for his eternal promises for his chosen people? Gordon Wenham says this. He says, as always in Genesis, the material draws attention to the divine promises. This section, therefore, encourages the reader to follow with eager anticipation the family history of Isaac that is about to begin. If God did not overlook his promises to Ishmael, how much more certainly will he he fulfill those guaranteed by an oath to Abraham and Isaac and his descendants? Church, this passage today should cause us to look forward. It should cause us to look ahead and to look ahead with eager anticipation, If God was faithful to fulfill even these small promises to Abraham, how much more will he fulfill his eternal promises to his chosen people? And friends, we see it right in the text. We don't have to imagine this. We don't have to conjure this up. Look at verse 11. Immediately after Abraham's death, verse 11, God blessed his son Isaac. The lineage continues. God is faithful to his word. The descendants of Abraham who are ultimately the descendants of Adam and Eve are still being led by God's sovereign and gracious hand. God is is proving himself faithful to bring about the seed of the woman promised in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 who would crush Satan under his foot and redeem all of God's people back to himself. Church, look forward with eager anticipation. Maybe you are particularly condemned by your sin this morning. Maybe you're particularly discouraged by your failures from this past week or or even from this last night. Maybe you're just tired of living in a fallen world while dealing with your own sinfulness and the sinfulness of those around you. Christian, listen. There's not only grace for your past. There is not only grace for your present, there is also grace for your future. God God wasn't done working in Abraham's life. A future descendant, Jesus, would come and fulfill all of God's promises to the fullest. But God wasn't even done with Abraham or with Jesus when he came. That same Jesus, church, is coming back again. He's going to return And when he does return, he will fully and completely wash away every sin and tear every tear and every trouble from our lives. Death will be no more. Sorrow will be no more. Chronic pain and illness will be no more. Relational pain and difficulty and anxiety, no more. Racism, no more. Poverty, no more. Condemnation and guilt and depression, no more. Because he's going to make all things new. And listen, friend, none of us are too far gone to be made new by this Jesus. In fact, listen, even though verse 6 says that Abraham sends his other sons out Eastward, which in the book of Genesis, to move eastward is to move away from God's presence, to move away from the Garden of Eden. Even though Abraham sends his sons eastward, they will become nations who stand against Israel. Even they can be redeemed by God's grace. In Isaiah chapter 60, verse 7, the prophet Isaiah speaks of a coming day when even these nations, which are listed right here, will return and be a part of the new creation and the new world. Even these nations are welcomed into the promises of God. Church, there is grace for your future. There's grace to cover not only your past, but all of your present and future needs as well. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. His grace has led us safe thus far. And church, his grace will lead us home. (laughs) Church, what hope, what eager expectation this is. This life is not all that there is. There is eternity before us. And so friend, when you consider the sum of your life, when you consider what the bottom line of your existence will be when all is tallied up, Friend, know this morning that it will be God's grace and only God's grace. Grace for your past, grace for your present, and grace for your future. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we will have no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. The the sum of our lives now and the sum of our lives in 10,000 years from now, when God has made all things new, what will we amount to? We will amount to men and women who deserved wrath, but who received grace over our past, over our present, over our future. Christian, the sum of your life from beginning to end is grace and only grace.